3: Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Harmon here with you. The special prosecutor, Robert Mueller, has come out and said he's pulling Manafort's plea deal. And everybody's speculating about what this means. And The Guardian came out with an article suggesting that in March of 2016, Paul Manafort, I believe it was March of 2016, that Paul Manafort actually met with Julian Assange. And the WikiLeaks Twitter account said, well, bet a million dollars, that never happened. Well, they might not have met in person. I mean, maybe they talked over the phone. Maybe they walked, talked through an intermediary. Or maybe they didn't have any communication at all. But the very specific kind of timeline that seems to be erupting is showing Okay, on February 29th, this is back in 2016. Okay, Donald Trump looks like he's moving forward. And Paul Manafort sends Trump a written pitch to make me your campaign manager. I will not even take a salary. And of course, free is Donald Trump's favorite word. And so, you know, he hired them. And there was a recommendation from Roger Stone. The week later, a week after that, this is, uh, I'm getting this off Daily Coast from a piece Mark Sumner wrote. A week after that, Sam Clovis, who seems to have some associations with some Russians, told the Trump team that good Russian-U.S.-Russian relations were the goal of the campaign. A week after that, Papadopoulos, who had been in that meeting and heard that speech, met with this professor in London who claimed to have Russian connections. Uh, that was all in just in March of 2016. But then, Later on that month, it appears that well, this is what Mark Sumner is writing. Russians began a dedicated attempt to hack the emails of more than 300 employees of the DNC, DCCC, and Clinton campaigns using two large teams of specialists. At the end of the month, two things happened. Trump met with his campaign team, where Papadopoulos discussed Russian help, and Paul Manafort was hired by the Trump campaign. And so then he he notes if Paul Manafort was meeting with Assange in March of 2016, it shows that every part of the Russia plan from stealing the Democratic emails to distributing them through WikiLeaks was actually planned in advance. And that the campaign chair, Paul Manafort, was at the center of that. Now, if Manafort has been lying to Mueller all this time and thinking that he's getting away with it, this brings up the possibility of a whole new fascinating feedback loop. And that is that Manafort might have been Trump's eyes and ears inside the Mueller investigation. He was the guy who could spy on the investigation on behalf of Donald Trump. And so Mueller knew this. I mean, this is just speculative, but if this scenario is true, Mueller knew this and was feeding misinformation to Manafort about what he knew and what he was doing. Manafort then feeds that misinformation through his lawyers to Donald Trump And maybe we've got whatever his name is, uh, the new attorney general, Whitaker, that's right, you know, involved in all this. And so then Trump fills out the written questions, written answers to Mueller's questions, and he fills them out with the lies that he thinks back up Manafort's lies. And now Mueller is coming out after he's gotten this written stuff from Trump and says, you know, Manafort's lying. If Trump is too, whoa. you are listening to the Tom Hartman program. I mean, this is this is going to start getting really, really interesting. I got to tell you about uh, Mia Love, and uh, it's just a bunch of stuff going on. Stick around, and we'll pick up your phone calls also after the break. Apparently, Trump is tweeting about now. Both sides do it which is like oh really that's interesting because it looks like if this guardian story holds up that manafort met with assange in march of 2016 the same month that you know sam clovis was in there in the trump campaign papadopoulos was in the trump campaign both of them were talking with people in russia the following month russian teams began hacking the dnc according to the intelligence agencies and then later on that year in October of 2016, I believe it was, WikiLeaks starts dumping these files that have been hacked back in April, May, June, whenever it was. If that indicates that this was all set up right from the get-go, right from the very beginning, that this was all, this was the plan, basically, then that would apparently be collusion at least between WikiLeaks, somebody in Russia, whether it's a private entity or whether it's the government itself, and the Trump campaign. And where is that going to go? And how does that work out? And at what point can Donald Trump you know, run away from that? I don't see it happening. This is one of those very, very interesting moments in time. A couple of other things I just wanted to mention in particular. I mentioned Mia Love. She is, of course, the only black woman in Congress who was a Republican, I believe. I'm pretty sure that's right. And she was beating Ben McAdams, the Democrat, and she's a Utah Congress opponent. She was beating uh, Ben McAdams, then she was not beating him, and then at the final count, just came out recently, and said that, nope, McAdams actually won. But back when it looked like McAdams was going to win, Trump said, Mia Love gave me no love, and she lost. Too bad, sorry about that, Mia. And so she's now coming out and talking about Trump. She says, the president's behavior toward me made me wonder What did he have to gain by saying such a thing about a fellow Republican? See, she's right on the edge here of saying, it's all about my being black. She goes on to say, it was not really about asking him to do more, was it? Or was it something else? Well, Mr. President, we'll have to chat about that sometime. However, this gave me a clear vision, Mia Love says, of his world as it is. No real relationships, just convenient transactions. That is an insufficient way to implement sincere service and policy. So here you have a Republican congresswoman saying, wait a minute, this guy is entirely transactional. You can't have a relationship with him. You can't trust him, basically. She added, you see, we feel like politicians claim they know what's best for us. And by we, I believe she's speaking of black people in general. She said, she says, you see, we feel like politicians claim they know what's best for us from a safe distance. Yet Washington, I'm missing a line here. They got cut off on this, printed it. But basically what she had said was the Democrats they at least make you feel like you have a home. And so, you know, interesting. And then now it's coming out, by the way, Hunter writing over at Daily Kos, that this idea of the Saudis are buying hundreds of billions of dollars worth of weapons from us. The actual deal was for 15 billion, and it wasn't even a deal. It was a memorandum of intent, 15 billion dollars. So Jared Kushner, about three weeks before Trump made his first overseas visit to Saudi Arabia, Jared Kushner wrote a memo in which he said, we need to do something to, quote, symbolically solidify, end quote, this relationship between Trump and Saudi Arabia. So we've got this $15 billion worth of stuff that the Saudis would like to buy from us. And over the course of the next few years, you know, maybe they will. So let's just say it's $100 billion. Let's just make it up. And it will symbolically solidify our relationship. And Trump is continuing to lie using this stuff. And then finally, the last thing I want to share with you, sometimes the Financial Times is just shocking in how blunt they can be. This is about the GM plant that is shutting down. They're shutting down seven plants. The headline, General Motors shuts down seven plants drawing a rebuke from Trump. The second paragraph, it's also the second sentence of the article, says... Shares in the largest U.S. car maker closed nearly 5% higher after it announced the moves. I'll let that sink in for a minute. A company announces that they're, they've just laid off 18,000 people by buying them out, essentially. And they're going to lay off another 14,000, and they're going to close seven plants. And their share price goes up 5%. Wall Street, the Dow, you know, the market doesn't give a rat's ass about employment. Right? But then it continues. Sharemakers of the largest U.S. car maker closed nearly 5% higher after it announced the moves, which were intended to cut $6 billion in costs as GM braces for a downturn in its home market and the impact of the global trade war. In other words, the reason why General Motors is doing this, according to the Financial Times, is they're expecting a recession, maybe a depression. They're shutting down seven whole factories. Ford. Uh, a month ago, announced that by 2020, they're no longer going to make cars in the United States. And GM is pretty much heading in that direction. I mean, this is, you know, not what Trump said he wanted. And, you know, why is this of consequence? Well, (laughs) because, see, if part of the problem, then they'd identify it in this article, is that GM's costs in the last year, their steel costs and aluminum costs went up $1 billion because of Trump's tariffs. Now, if that manufacturing had come back to the United States, you know, if the tariffs had been passed by Congress and they were gonna be in place for the next 20 years, then you would have companies in the United States saying, let's get into the steelmaking business. And they would be building factories and, you know, the price would be going down. But because Trump is doing it by executive order claiming national security, companies have no guarantee that after the Trump leaves with the White House in two years, that there's going to be tariffs. So why build a factory based on tariffs that may go away? And so basically Trump's trade war is this toothless tiger making all kinds of noises and killing GM. It's amazing. So what's your sense of what's going on here with Manafort? And see, I think Gates, Rick Gates is going to end up being the key to an awful lot of this. He was Manafort's business partner in Ukraine. It looks like That woman, Yulia, who always had her hair in braids, she was the one that Manafort went after. I think her last name was Tomomenko or something like that. Manafort went after her in a way that has startling similarities to the way that the Republicans and WikiLeaks went after Hillary. And, And his partner in that was Rick Gates. So while Manafort might have been lying to Mueller all this time, I think Rick Gates was actually telling him what was going on. And that's how Mueller knows that Manafort was lying to him. Lewis in Chicago, your thoughts.
2: So I disagree with two things you're talking about, the Manafort deal and the GM deal. I guess I'll start with Manafort. I really think that Mueller already knew about all this. This is nothing new. This is just new pressure he's trying to put on Manafort to say the things he wants him to say. And now that Mueller has a Democratic Congress behind him, they got subpoena power, and this is all political, this is all made
3: up political Lewis, it's and not. hang on just a second, you said that Mueller pulling the plea deal because Manafort's lying to him is an attempt to put more pressure on him to, quote, say what Mueller wants. That can't be, because by pulling the plea deal, he has taken everything off the table. There's no possibility for Manafort to get this back. The only way he can avoid spending the rest of his life in jail is to be pardoned by Donald Trump, and I'm guessing that that'll happen. Right after Trump loses the election in November of 2020 and before he leaves office in January 2020, or at least that's, I'm guessing that's the deal he's cut with Manafort.
2: That's a possibility, but this makes it, if Trump does win, it makes it harder for Trump to give Manafort a plea deal because Mueller is putting political pressure by going after, again, another canard.
3: I don't understand what that means. I'm sorry. You uh, said sorry. Mueller is putting political pressure. Mueller, Mueller's not a politician. He's a prosecutor.
2: He's a politician.
3: He's never been a politician. He's I, never been elected anything. He's been a I, prosecutor his whole life and he ran the FBI.
2: Okay, well, he's political. You and I will disagree on that. But right. again, I see, I see this as a completely, completely political move. Uh, but as far as GM, I think both you and uh, President Obama should be chastising GM. Uh, Bush gave GM some breaks, and of course, Obama bailed out GM. I don't blame him for it. I disagree with some of the things he did in the bailout, but nonetheless, GM was bailed out by the U.S., and now they reward us by taking away 15,000 jobs. Well, here's what's happening right
3: now, Lewis, that that maybe you're missing. Hang on just a second. The big picture thing that I think you're missing. There are seven major car lines that are sold in the United States. The top five, the first five, are all cars that are manufactured in Japan or are Japanese companies that are manufactured in the United States with low-wage labor. They're not General Motors or Ford. And that's the problem that GM and Ford have. Donald Trump said he was going to solve that problem by putting tariffs on Japanese cars. I haven't seen that happen. Have you? No, I haven't, but I'm hopeful that it's going to work. But you He's you not even talking it about it. What's that? He's not even talking about it. If he wanted to save GM tomorrow, all he'd have to do is slap a 25% tariff on Japanese-made cars. Uh, He himself uh, will tell you that. He said that during the campaign. I still disagree with GM running... That's GM not, is just trying to GM, survive. I mean, this is a company that... GM
2: is profitable right now. They're not trying to survive. They, they are making a profit.
3: They are anticipating... They are Number one, they have a, a billion dollars in increased costs this year because of steel and aluminum, which is Trump's trade war. And number two, they are anticipating a recession. They'd be crazy not to. I mean, there's only been one sustained economic recovery since, since you know, 1900 that lasted more than eight years. and the, And that was like in the... I think that was the one after World War II in the 40s or something, some time ago. Anyway, so I think they're you know,
2: being presumptuous, and, and their stock just went up because of this. This is a money grab, and it's a spit in the face of the American people. Of course it is.
3: And Obama should be out there chastising. Obama is no longer Obama. president. No, but Obama did stick his tongue So neck out so why is Trump, tr- well, you know if Trump actually out. wants to save U.S. jobs and he thinks the tariffs are the way to do it, then why isn't he asking Congress to slap tariffs? Or why isn't it he using his national security option, slapping tariffs because on Japanese cars?
2: Said, GM doesn't back up what we give them, So why should he stick his neck out like Obama did?
3: All right. Okay. Lewis, you know, we'll see how it all plays out. Thanks a lot for the call. Boy, is there a lot going on. And more of the news today the day right after this. You spend every day in your office chair. That's over 2,000 hours a year. So if you're spending all that time in the wrong chair, is it any wonder why you're sore and tired at the end of the day? Ditch that no-name, one-size-fits-all Superstore chair and trade up to the X-chair. When you feel the X-chair difference, you'll understand. My X-chair is the most stylish chair I've ever owned. Trust me, this is not your grandfather's office chair. Switching to the X chair, I'm more productive and have more energy. I love my X chair, and you will too. X chair is now on sale for the holidays, so buy one for yourself and one for someone you love. X chair is now on sale for $100 off, so call 844-4-X-CHAIR or go to xchairtom.com, that's m.com now to save $100. And here's a special deal just for my listeners. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and they'll even throw in a free footrest. Go to x. Tom, or call 844 4 x and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com, 844 4 Our book today is Age of Discovery, Navigating the Storms of Our Second Renaissance by Ian Golden and Chris Kutarna. Uh, the paperback edition is now out. This is from chapter one, titled To Flounder or Flourish. If Michelangelo were reborn right now, amidst all the turmoil that marks this shocking moment we're in, would he flounder or flourish again? Every year, millions of people file into the Sistine Chapel to stare up and wonder at Michelangelo Buonarroti's creation of Adam. Millions more pay homage to Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Through five centuries, we have carefully preserved such Renaissance masterpieces and cherished them as objects of beauty and inspiration. But they also challenge us the artists who crafted these feats of genius 500 years ago did not inhabit some magical age of universal beauty but rather a tumultuous moment marked by historic milestones and discoveries yes but also wrenching upheaval their world was tangling together in a way that it had never done before thanks to gutenberg's recent invention of the printing press 1450s columbus's discovery of the new world 1492 and Vasco da Gama's discovery of a sea route to Asia's riches, 1497. And humanity's fortunes were changing in some ways radically. The Black Death had tapered off, Europe's population was recovering, and public health, wealth, and education were all rising. Genius flourished under these conditions as evidenced by artistic achievements, especially from the 1490s to the 1520s. By Copernicus's revolutionary theories of a sun-centered cosmos, 1510 and by similar advances in a wide range of fields from biology to engineering to navigation to medicine. Basic common sense truths that had stood unquestioned for centuries, even millennia, were eroding away. The earth did not stand still. The sun did not revolve around it. The known world wasn't even half of the whole. The human heart wasn't the soul. It was a pump. In mere decades, printing boosted the production of books from hundreds to millions per year, And these weird facts and new ideas traveled farther and faster than had ever been possible. But risk flourished, too. Terrifying new diseases spread like wildfire on both sides of the now-connected Atlantic. The Ottoman Turks, backed by the new weapon of gunpowder, conquered the eastern Mediterranean for Islam in a stunning series of land and naval victories that cast a threatening gloom over all of Europe. Martin Luther, 1483 to 1546 leveraged gutenberg's press to broadcast a new narrative that society's hallowed institutions served only to fatten their own hierarchies it spread faster than compliant elites could fathom europe broke into protestant and catholic halves war and refugee crises ignited continent wide meanwhile the populist priest girolamo savonarola 1452 to 1498 ignited a real fire the bonfire of the vanities in florence The very heart of renaissance europe with apocalyptic sermons savonarola stoked people's worst reactions to rapid change he promised florentines a return to past glories if only they would join him in his campaign to burn away weak elites and their corrupt agendas enough did so that he was able to lord over the republic as a de facto king until four years later his political enemies literally crucified him Such was the age in which on 8 September 1504 in Florence, Italy, Michelangelo unveiled his statue of David in the city's main square. Standing over five meters tall, weighing in at over six tons of fine Carrara marble, David was an instant monument to the city's wealth and to that sculptor's skill. David and Goliath was a familiar Old Testament story about a brave young warrior who, in true underdog fashion, improbably defeated a giant foe in a single combat with hammer and chisel. Michelangelo fixed into stone a monument no one had seen before. It must have caused some confusion for those present at the unveiling. David's face and neck were tense. His brow was furrowed and his eyes focused determinedly upon some distant point. He stood not triumphant atop the corpse of his enemy, the standard portrayal, but ready with the implacable resolve of one who knows his next step but not its outcome. And then they saw the artist's meaning clearly. Michelangelo carved David in that fateful moment between decision and action, between realizing what he must do and summoning the courage to do it. They knew that moment. They were in it. We are in it, too. The present age is a contest between the good and bad consequences of global entanglement and human development, between forces of inclusion and exclusion, between flourishing genius and flourishing risks. Whether we each flourish or flounder and whether the 21st century goes down in the history books as one of humanity's best or worst depends on what we all do to promote the possibilities and dampen the dangers that this contest brings. The stakes could not be higher. We each have the perilous fortune to have been born into an historic moment, a decisive moment, when events and choices in our own lifetime will dictate the circumstances of many, many lifetimes to come. Yes, it is the conceit of each generation to think so, but this time it's true. The long-term facts speak more loudly than our egos ever could. Age of Discovery. Fascinating book. Uh, on the line with us right now is Tom Perez, the former U.S. Secretary of Labor, the chair of the De- Democratic National Committee, uh, the, the DNC, Democrats.org, of course, their website. And uh, Secretary Perez, welcome back to the program. Always great to be with you, Tom. Thank you. Thank you so much. Three topics here that I'm, I'm curious to get your take on. GM, and now I understand that uh, the Trump people are saying that in response to General Motors, Trump might put tariffs on foreign cars boarded in the United States, with the exception of Canada and Mexico. you got the climate report, which is Trump is saying he doesn't believe at the same time that our country is literally on fire on the West Coast and freezing on the East Coast as a result of the jet stream disintegrating from climate change. And then the border crisis. I don't know where you'd like to start.
4: Oh, wow. Uh, Let's just go in uh, sequence. A a trilogy of Trump's broken promises, uh, climate denial, denial of facts, lying again on what's happening in so many places. I mean, one week before the 2016 election in Michigan, candidate Trump said the following, Tom, you will not lose one plant. I promise you that. That was uh, Halloween 2016. You will not lose one plant. I promise you that. And once again, workers get screwed while GM reaps a $157 million tax windfall from the Trump tax cut, that tax cut that was going to result in all this investment in workers, which was a crock of you-know-what. Uh, That tax cut hasn't done a damn thing for working people. It's done a lot for large businesses and very wealthy people, but it really hasn't done a damn thing for (laughs) everybody else. And that is what we see this here. With this announcement, we saw it with the Harley closing. We saw the plant. This president is a serial liar. Policies are hurting workers. They're not helping workers. And that is the reality of the situation. Yet another broken promise. On climate, uh, it it is remarkable that on Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, they released the report. Why did they do it the day after Thanksgiving? They wanted to bury it. But you can't bury the reality that the West Coast out in Los Angeles, and I was there a couple weeks ago, whether you're down in Los Angeles or, frankly, uh, you're up in Sacramento, Uh, you're feeling the impact of just absolutely tragic and preventable fires. And then he starts blaming other people. Ninety percent of the land there is federal land, something like that. So don't start blaming other people. Look yourself in the
3: mirror. This is just remarkable. A lot of what burned wasn't even forest land. I mean, you had an entire city, paradise, that burned. This is the result of years and years of drought, and that drought is the consequence of the jet stream, which is only maintained it is kind of physics 101, you know, like a cold front coming through. The strength of the storm is the difference in temperature between the, the air in front and the air behind the, the front, right? The jet stream is maintained, it's strong because the, the Arctic is, is colder than, than where we are. But the Arctic has been warming three to six times faster than mid-latitudes and the result of that is that the jet stream is falling apart. And it just kind of is drooling down over the United States. Weather patterns are staying where they didn't used to stay. And So instead of a one day rain, you get a four day flood. Instead of a, you know, a one year uh, dry spell, you get a four year drought. Or uh, instead of that 100 year storm, you get five of them
4: in five years. That's right. And that's what we're seeing around this country. And, and put aside the human dimension, which we should never put aside. of of these tragedies that are caused by climate. There's an economic dimension that's mentioned in this report. And the economic cost of climate change, hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars, potentially something like 10% of our GDP, if we don't take this seriously. So those aren't my numbers. Those are the figures from the the, the report that was released uh, by this administration. And, and, And then, I mean, the border uh now they're denying the use of tear gas i guess people doctored the photographs
3: well trump like trump that. has invented this brand new thing it's milder tear gas now according to the us army they just only have one kind of tear gas everywhere it's all the same um but he i mean this guy just you know he he wakes up in the morning and starts and 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 he has to lie about whether he brushed his teeth or something you literally cannot trust anything that comes out of his mouth it is breathtaking
4: It's unprecedented in our nation's history. This is the most dangerous president in American history. I've said that before. I'll say it right now, and I'll continue to say it. And it's not simply uh, because of the topics that we've talked about uh, today, Tom. Uh, When you erode public confidence in the media, as he has continued uh, to do, uh, fake news, fake news, when you are attacking institutions of government that are supposed to be independent, like my old employer, the Department of Justice. When you're crossing red lines on a daily basis, uh, telling uh, the Department of Justice who to prosecute, putting in as an acting attorney general one of your cronies whose number one mission is to undermine the Mueller investigation. Uh, This is a constitutional crisis that we are uh, on the verge of. and, And that's why... Uh, I'm very proud of what happened at election time because uh, the American people woke up. We had record turnout. We showed, Tom, that we can be a 50-state party again. Uh, we won seats in places like Oklahoma, Utah, South Carolina, Kansas, and elsewhere uh, because we're competing everywhere. And what, what what I find heartening is that while our democracy is on fire um, and it's a five-alarm blaze, people have awakened. And they understand that we have to participate day in and day out and while we have more work to do and we're working today as we speak in mississippi we're working down in georgia there's an important secretary of state race uh, there next tuesday and john barrow needs to get elected down there and mike Esby, um needs to get elected today in mississippi uh, we're going to continue to make sure we're organizing all across this country competing all across this country and now we're heading into a presidential cycle and uh, we've, we will continue our efforts to make sure we earn the trust of voters that understand that we're fighting for the issues they care about. We're fighting for America that works for everyone. We're fighting for things like truth and facts and science and uh, opportunity for everyone. I mean, this, this the greed that is embodied in this decision to close these plants in the aftermath of a $157 million windfall um, as a result of that tax
3: cut. That, that's just uh, breathtaking. It's yeah. unconscionable. Yeah, it really is. Um, one last question. Sp- speaking of elections, um, I-, I don't know if you saw the op-ed I, I published last week. It was uh, on a bunch of different websites, uh, you know, the alternate and Slate and so on and whatnot. But um, if you go back and you look at the exit polls from 2016 in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, um, in numerous states, what the exit polls showed was that Hillary Clinton won. What the actual vote count showed was that Donald Trump won. And the and and you know going going back to Paul Weyrich back in in nineteen eighty, you know, famously saying, "I no, don't want everybody wow. to vote." Um, it looks like the percentage and these were all between. Two and five percent. Um, uh, this red shift, and it was always a red shift. It appears that this is the result of voter suppression of people who voted or who went to vote, not knowing that they'd been removed from the from the polls, and and were given a provisional ballot, not being told that it would never be counted, and then told the exit pollsters as they walked out, "Yeah, I voted for I voted for Hillary," and not knowing that their vote would never be counted. And this accounts for the difference. What is the Democratic Party doing about this?
4: Mm-hmm. We have to understand that we need to have a permanent voter protection and empowerment infrastructure. I think the historic mistake that we've made is failing to fully appreciate, Tom, that voter suppression is a permanent staple in the Republican playbook. You and I have played the Paul Weyrich tape uh, on your program. I've played it probably 100 times before various audiences. Yep. And i played it to make the point that that wasn't a statement made in 2015 or 2018 or 2017. It was a statement made in 1980. Yep. And it reflected uh, a philosophy within their party that we want to make sure that less people vote. The reason I just mentioned John Barrow's election um, a few minutes ago is that I, I have no doubt that eight years of Brian Kemp, and I know Brian Kemp because I sued him when I had the Civil Rights Division. He is, mm-hmm. a, he is a, um, a co-chair along with uh, Kobach from Kansas of the Voter Suppression Permanent Task Force of the Republican Party. And I have no doubt that what Kemp did over the course of eight years was responsible for Stacey Abrams' loss. I don't have any doubt about that in my mind.
3: Completely and what
4: we have to do um, more of and, and this is exactly what we've been doing, is to build a 24-7 voter protection infrastructure. We can't wait until a week before an election or a day after the election to be filing lawsuits. And um, there's a lot of folks that have been working on this and been and doing great work. Um, at the same time, we, we have to be... Building relationships, because of our decentralized voting infrastructure in this country, and that's a separate problem that we ought to have a separate conversation about, Yeah, uh, you've got to build relationships with county officials across the country. If we don't do that, we're, we're going to continue to shake our head after all too many elections saying we should have won that, and yep. there was hanky-panky that resulted in the
3: lot. yeah this is this is yeah hanky-panky uh, to the level of in my opinion a felony tom perez the chair of the dnc former u.s secretary of labor thank you so much sir for dropping by
4: always a pleasure tom
3: good talking with you thank you we'll be right back Holidays are brutal if you're trying to maintain your weight or even lose a little. All those tempting goodies at the office and get-togethers, I want you to try Ridgizone. I've been telling you how well it works for my wife. Louise wanted to lose a little weight with a wedding coming up. She read about university research and how one particular molecule helps regulate appetite. Ridgizone is designed to boost levels of that one molecule, your metabolism too, so you stop craving the wrong foods, like too many holiday sweets, and you burn calories faster. With her appetite and cravings under control, she said losing weight was easy. She has more energy on her hikes and she looks amazing. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough and you want to lose the weight you've been struggling to lose, even over the holidays. Get non-prescription, FDA-accepted Riduzone. While supplies last, you can use the promo code as T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off plus free shipping. Go to tryriduzone.com. That's try, r i d u zone, ecom So don't forget, while supplies last, use the promo code Tom and get 30% off plus free shipping. Try Tryriduzone.com today. Tom Harbin here with you. And on the line with us, our old buddy Greg Palast, who has been just, uh, t- boy, this has been his year. The investigative journalist, author, filmmaker, the, the most recent, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy. You can find it over at Amazon. GregPallast.com is the website. You can tweet him at Greg underscore Palast, just like I'm Tom underscore Harbin. Greg, welcome back. Glad to be with you, Tom. Quite a day. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Mississippi and Stacey Abrams uh, seem to be at the top of the news. Let's start with Mississippi. What's going on there as Lynch and Cindy is trying to uh, hang on to the seat to which she had been previously appointed?
0: Right. The runoff for the U.S. Senate seat against incumbent, that is, she was just appointed, Cindy Hyde-Smith. Versus a former uh, Clinton Secretary of Agriculture, Mike Espy, and Espy spoke to my team, which is down in Mississippi right now, and he told us something no one else has reported. It's uh, just ugly. An old trick called push polling. They're calling elderly black voters, and they are telling them, according to Espy, and he's got after legal affidavits signed by these voters. They're telling them, you know, who do you want to vote for? We're polling, you know, we're doing a poll on the race. Who are you voting for for Senate? And if they said, Mike Espy. They said, oh, great. Uh, and by the way, that registers your vote. So you do not have to vote on Tuesday.
3: Not only is that pretty bizarre, but you pointed out that this is not the first time this exact same play has happened. And the last time it was uh, outed, we discovered who was paying for it.
0: Yes, back in '96, turns out the money traced back to the Koch brothers doing push polling in Kansas, uh, backing uh, Sam Brownback, Brownback, the you know the ultra right uh, at that time running for Senate against Jill Docking. And they would ask you, uh, "Who do you want to vote for Senate?" If they said Docking, they said, "Would you reconsider your vote if you knew that Jill Docking is Jewish?" By the way, she is. Docking lost. That's a typical case of push polling. By the way, there was one other case. Someone supporting George W. Bush, I can't say it's Bush, did push polling on McCain when they were running in the primaries back in, uh, in 2000 when uh, they were asking uh, people if they would still vote for McCain, knowing that he had fathered uh, a black Illegitimate child,
3: right? And this was based on then, yeah. This is a major scandal, and this was in the Carolinas that this was happening. And and of course, he has a he has a daughter that they adopted from Bangladesh, or he he's no longer with us. I mean, he had one.
0: This is even worse because not just smearing the candidate, it's saying you don't have to vote. Your vote's been recorded. That goes from bad taste, nasty work to absolutely illegal under federal law. Mm-hmm. You're denying someone the right to vote, um, and that is a violation of federal law. It's a crime. You go to jail for that. That's, the, that's what's happening in Mississippi, um, ugly stuff in Mississippi. Then we got Georgia. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, today, Stacey Abrams filed a federal lawsuit, I just say, and, and her organization, now a nonpartisan group, called Fair Fight Georgia, has filed the federal lawsuit to basically demand the total redo of the Georgia voting system to take it back out of the Jim Crow era. After the Voting Rights Act was gutted by the Supreme Court in two thousand thirteen, as the suit noted, Georgia became the worst backsliding state in the nation, according to a study by Harvard. On every single count of Jim Crow trickery, Georgia was was in the front of the line. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, from uh, uh, cutting back early voting. And, and, but they also, I was glad they picked up, because uh, I'd been talking to their attorneys. Again, I couldn't do it until Stacey Abrams set up a, not, a nonpartisan organization. Uh, two things that I'd brought to their attention. One is the massive refusal to hand people provisional ballots which is required by law and thank you Tom for getting uh, me in touch with uh, ex congressman Nay who actually wrote that provision saying voters wrongly purged from the voter rolls can get a provisional ballot and challenge it. Well what Brian Kemp did he he turned down he put out the word to not allow people whom he had purged wrongly to even get a ballot a provisional ballot to challenge that purge. Right. That's been put into the lawsuit um, and uh, I did tell them to get a hold of Congressman Nay to talk about how, why that is in the law to just to stop this yep. kind of racist trickery.
3: Yep, yep. And in fact, and, Bob Nay told me, and this was in the article uh, that I wrote after the law was passed. He was the congressman from Ohio. He's a Republican. And uh, Michael, oh, what was his name? The guy who was the Secretary of State. Uh, Ken uh, Blackwell. Black. Ken Blackwell, that's right. Yeah, Blackwell. And Ken Blackwell was still refusing to give people provisional ballots and he was still purging people, et cetera, et cetera. And, and uh, he said he confronted Blackwell about it, and Blackwell said, I'm just going to keep on doing this. Tough luck, Bob.
0: <laughs> and then uh, we end up also in Stacey Abrams lawsuit, and we discussed on a program, and this is how the word got out, that we had the list of all the people wrongly purged 340,134 people, which we know for certain were wrongly purged. She's taking that on. That's at the top of her suit, uh, taking on the Georgia law that basically authorized Kemp in violation of the Constitution, in violation of federal law, to remove people because they failed to vote and failed to return a postcard. I call it purge by postcard. Right. They call it use it or lose
3: it. But we used it, to call it caging.
0: By the way, they explained how this hits voters of color in the face because of this whole postcard scam because if you're a poor kid or, or even a student, you don't have to be poor, and you're moving around, you're not even getting that postcard to return this piece of junk mail and you lose your vote. Right. Uh, they also had this exact match business and proof of citizenship, which is used also in Georgia, and they said one-fourth, even though it's only like 2% of the voting public in Georgia is Asian American, one-fourth of the people who were denied the right to vote under this you know, this exact match system where every single letter and, and space in your name has to match uh, the voting records and your driver's license, that one-fourth of the people who lost their vote were Asian-American. By the way, Asian-Americans vote about 75% Democratic in Georgia,
2: wow. so they knew
0: who they were going after. Three-quarters of the people who got knocked out by this process are non-white. So tell me, was this to protect the voter rolls, Or was this to run a sophisticated Jim Crow operation? That's what Stacey Abrams' lawsuit is about. It cites the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, the Voting Rights Act, and the Help America Vote Act. That is uh, what Bob Ney had put together to protect voters. You know, there were some honest Republicans around, you know, Yeah. Uh, when it comes to electoral uh, uh, process. some, You know, there were a few Republicans that thought, well, maybe we ought to just win the votes instead of stealing the votes.
3: Yeah. Yeah, what a novel idea. Um, be, before we wrap this up, Greg, if I could just go back to Mississippi for a moment. I have not heard anything about purge lists coming out of Mississippi. Has their Secretary of State been running a fairly uh, clean game there, or were they part of the Chris Kobach's interstate cross-check thing?
0: Completely. They were in the Kobach operation, and in fact, my lawyers have already notified them that they're going to end up in federal court unless they turn over all the information on the purge list that they got from Chris Kobach. So they did a Uh, whole Kobach on the voter rolls of Mississippi. You look at the population of Mississippi, there is no reason for that to be a red state. It's got the largest black
3: population in the United States, doesn't it, on a per capita basis? Yeah,
0: and so if you put together black, and the growing Hispanic and Asian American population. uh, And so what's happened is if you look at the state of Mississippi, plus the progressives in the cities. There's no reason why it should be a red state if everyone who had the right to vote got the vote. That would change everything. And I'm going to tell you, Mississippi, Georgia, we've really gone back 50 years in voting rights in those states. And Stacey Abrams, bless her, has brought this lawsuit to say enough is enough, and we're going to change the entire electoral system in Georgia so it conforms to democracy.
3: Yeah. And I sure hope that she's successful. And, and you know, you're just absolutely indefatigable efforts, Greg. I mean, you, you have been on this beat for so long and you've done such a brilliant job of it. I'm so grateful to you. And I know that all, all of our listeners, maybe most of our listeners, are. we have a few Republicans out there. Greg Palace.
0: Thank you so much for letting me through the electronic Berlin Wall.
3: My, my pleasure. gregpalace.com is the website. And his latest movie, The Best Democracy Money Can Buy, you can find it over at Amazon, his Twitter handle, greg underscore palace, P-A-L-E-S-T. With all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where my data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk. You are being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies and your mobile and internet provider now that the republicans have destroyed net neutrality that's why i decided to take back my privacy by using expressvpn expressvpn has easy to use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer phone and tablet turning on expressvpn protection only takes one click expressvpn secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public ip address protecting yourself with expressvpn costs less than seven dollars a month protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at ExpressVPN.com Tom. That's expressvp T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. Visit ExpressVPN.com Tom to learn more. Hey, thanks so much for your support for the tom hartman program along with your support for free speech tv we deliver our program of course to commercial stations which is how we pay our bills uh through the revenue from running advertising and you can learn more about those at our website at tomhartman.com. but we also share our program with non-commercial outlets from free speech tv to pacifica stations all over the country and because with the Pacifica radio stations, there's basically no revenue coming in. The way that we support our nonprofit outreach is in large part through Patreon. And you know, over Patreon, people who support our program at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Um, people who support our program there get you know, special little clips and there's a few other goodies, uh, behind the scenes kind of stuff. But that's principally, if you want to support the Tom Hartman program, Um, that's the way to do it, is to get over to patreon.com slash Tom Hartman and check out what we're doing and support our program. Thank you. Tom Hartman here with you. We talked some about the economy yesterday. I want to get back to that as well. So, you know, we've got this, this whole question of was Manafort lying to Mueller all along and Mueller knew it but he let Manafort do that so that Manafort would communicate back to Trump what his lies were so that when Trump filled out his questionnaire last week and said I wrote all the answers myself and submitted it to Manafort or to Mueller it was filled with the same lies that Manafort had so that Trump and Manafort thought that they were you know working something out here to 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 hide the truth and Mueller actually knew what was going on, and now he's nailed Trump. Is that what's going on? Or is it that we now have, you know, with his Guardian report that Manafort actually met with Julian Assange in uh, March of 2016. This was the same month Manafort was hired by the Trump, uh, or, or the, that he pitched himself. I, it might have been, you know, there's a, a couple of weeks in there where I'm not sure exactly when, when all these things happened, but there was a lot that happened in that month. And in the weeks immediately following that, in, in late March, early April, this appears to be, according to U.S. intelligence agencies, when the hacking of the DNC began coming out of Russia. And this also appears to be the time that Sam Clovis was interacting with uh, guys who, a guy and professor in the U.K. who said he had connections to Russia. All this stuff is kind of coming together. Is the noose tightening around Manafort now? Or, you know, a news tightening. I shouldn't even use that metaphor, particularly in the, you know, given Sidney Hyde Smith's comments. Is the, are the walls coming in, you know, around Donald Trump? Is that what's going on? I don't know. He also has the economy to worry about. Donald Trump tried to put us on a four-year sugar high. He thought he could get four years out of a trillion, out of a $5 trillion tax cut with a trillion and a half of it borrowed in your, my name, and given to billionaires in the very first year. Donald Trump thought, this is going to keep this economy going right up until 2020, and I'll get myself re-elected. And now, this from uh, dailyreckoning.com. Now, a new, lo- a new loan crisis is unfolding. The new crisis was not in mortgages, but in student loans. He goes on to say, total student loans today are one- at $1.6 trillion are larger than the amount of junk mortgages in late 2007 at about $1 trillion default rates on student loans are already higher than mortgage default rates in 2007. not only are student loan deficit defaults soaring but household debt has hit another all-time high student loans and household debt are just the tip of the debt iceberg which includes junk bonds corporate debt and even sovereign debt all three at or near record highs around the world trump's spinning all these plates in the air right And we learned in the last couple of days that right after he was inaugurated as president he was planning his first overseas trip jared kushner wanted to make it to saudi arabia he had become good buddies with Mohammed bin salman the the crown prince and of course he needed a billion dollars to bail out his building 666 fifth avenue and uh he wanted the saudis or the the emiratis who are basically kind of the same people in many regards to loan him the money which they ultimately did and so Kushner came up with this idea. The Saudis wanted to buy $15 billion worth of stuff from us, military hardware. And he said, well, let's just say that the number is $100 billion. Literally, let's just say it. Let's just make it up. The phrase that Jared Kushner used was symbolically solidify the relationship. But it's only $15 billion and it's not even been approved and it's made, you know, and it's just, this is nothing. And yet, To defend Jared Kushner and his hundreds of millions of dollars from that region, the White House right now is preventing, the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, Gina Haspel, is preventing her from speaking to the Senate, even in a closed-door session. You may not testify about what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. You may not testify about this. Pompeo and Mattis are going to give tapes, but Haspel actually traveled to Istanbul. She actually listened to the tapes of Khashoggi being murdered, being tortured, being dismembered. She listened to the tapes of the executioners calling the right-hand man of MBS in Saudi Arabia saying the deed is done, if the news reports are accurate. Officials made it clear that the decision for Haspel not to appear in front of the committee came from the White House. Denial is—is is there? You know, here you have 13 agencies in the U.S. government issuing a climate report saying we're in deep doo doo right now. We have a serious problem with the climate, and Trump's saying I don't believe it. You have the CIA saying, "Yeah, <laughs> you know, Kissoji was murdered by Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, and we've got the tapes to prove it." And Trump is saying, not only I don't believe it, but I'm not going to allow my own CIA to testify to the Senate. Which, by the way, is something he can do. The CIA is an executive branch job. Now, the question is, if the Senate subpoenas them and he tries to defy the subpoena, where does that go? Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by Goatsfortheoldgoat.com and loving What You Do, Ellen Ratner's new book, On the Line With Us, is talk media news's chief foreign correspondent based in New York at the United Nations, Luke Vargas. You can follow him on Twitter at The Courier. Luke, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much. So uh, European leaders uh, trying to figure out what to do about this uh, new crisis between Russia and uh, Ukraine. It seems to me that if this doesn't blow up badly, both Poroshenko and Putin win. I mean, Ukraine is... In a depression right now. They're the poorest country in Europe. Poroshenko's got like a 20, 20 some odd percent approval rating. He's largely increasingly hated by his people, and he's standing for re election mm-hmm. in March. Putin has a similar problem in Russia, particularly as the price of oil goes down since their economy is so dependent on oil. Russia's in a recession right now, and you know, our tariffs are, are also taking a bite. So Putin needs an external enemy, you know, somebody that he can blame things on. So if he can blame it on Poroshenko and Poroshenko can blame things on Putin, and both of them can get through the next four months without blowing the world up, Poroshenko might get himself reelected and Putin might just go back to being Putin. Or is that a completely naive analysis? Well,
5: I would say, you know, the martial law that's been imposed in Ukraine, which does forestall elections, um, is set to expire in 30 days. Now, we've seen in many countries around the world temporary states of emergency and martial laws that, you know presidents and leaders will say have nothing to do with elections because they're announced six months in advance, for instance, you do get renewed and conveniently forestall the actual elections. Um, we're still quite a ways away from that with respect to Ukraine. And I think it's worth reminding ourselves that Ukraine doesn't necessarily need another conflict to remind voters of the fact that they are basically at war with Russia or something very close to it. I mean, the, the, the level of existing hostilities is probably high enough that if this incident at the Kerch Strait doesn't turn into something bigger, I don't really see how it alone is enough to completely change the political calculus and get Poroshenko reelected. But again, we, we don't know if what we saw on Sunday is isolated or not. Um, with respect to, to Putin, I think it, it is worth pointing out, you know, some internal metrics show that his popularity has declined in the last few months. It's possible that uh, perhaps if, if the order came from the top to sort of attack these uh, Ukrainian ships or, or ram into them, On Sunday, Uh, maybe it's a way of trying to boost Putin's popularity within Russia. I also think that's difficult to say from the outside. What we can evaluate, though, are how countries are responding. The U.S. sort of had a, a contradictory response. You saw Nikki Haley at the United Nations saying, look, this is going to be a big hit for Russia. They're going to suffer reputational damage. We're not going to lower any of our sanctions so long as they keep doing things like this. President Trump though, not saying Putin by name, not really uh, delivering much of a condemnation as he spoke to reporters yesterday. That uh, contradiction did catch the attention of the Russian media, which I was uh, saw someone uh, excerpting a little quote from last night, uh, Uh, One of the TV presenters on Russia 24 joked about Nikki Haley, quote, she must have an unstable connection to the captain's bridge since the owner of the White House didn't blame Russia for Sunday's incident. And Nikki Haley seemed to be sort of out uh, a little bit on her own in her in her level of condemnation. Right. Uh, What a dig. Yeah. (laughs) Anyways, let's let's gauge Europe very, very briefly. Um, If the U.S. isn't going to, uh, there's no sign right now, uh, at, at least within the administration. And maybe Congress feels differently, but I still don't think so. There's no sign the U.S is going to impose new sanctions here. Will Europe You know, we've seen the Baltic leaders. We've seen the president of Poland uh, to, you know, uh, groups of European power that really are quite concerned about Russia. They've called for more sanctions. But Austria, which heads up the European presidency right now, really is taking a wait and see approach. And the Germans and the French, who would probably be the loudest cheerleaders of a possible push for more sanctions, have not been making those calls. So, again, I think um, unless Russia makes more steps in the next few days, this incident, though it did, you know, stoke fear that maybe we were seeing a new sort of front or or, or aggression from Russia, maybe we'll blow over. Does anybody Uh, know why
3: Russia did this?
5: Well, let's just say very briefly that, you know, the Sea of Azov, which is an internal ocean that has been sort of jointly uh, controlled by Ukraine and Russia for a long time, um, the only entrance point is through this narrow strait. And Russia has recently completed a bridge over that a narrow bit of water, which connects Crimea to the Russian mainland. And they have been, because of alleged terrorist threats against that piece of infrastructure, been subjecting Ukrainian boats that are coming in and out to service a lot of European ports that are only accessible through that waterway. They've been subjecting them to pretty long sort of security checks. And if they were to go further than that and not just delay them, but permanently stop them from entering that ocean, you have a lot of Ukrainian citizens which are going to be really cut off from global trade that becomes an economic problem. I think the fear in Ukraine is that if Russia, they don't even need to if launch a, a physical attack on those towns, but if you just cut them off and hurt them economically, that builds resentment, and that it creates a political opportunity for those populations to be targeted with Russian messaging or anti-Ukrainian messaging. I think
3: that's sort so. Of, throw out know, Poroshenko and put in put in a uh, basically a Russian puppet government. Look, listen, look, the Russians
5: are always highlighting poverty in Eastern Ukraine as sort of a justification for why Ukraine doesn't have legitimacy over those regions. If they you know, keep Ukrainian vessels out of the Sea of Azov, it would do that to a whole other part of the country.
3: Fascinating stuff. Thanks for a, for a thoughtful insight into the geopolitics here. Luke Vargas, great talking with you, Luke. Thank you. Cheers. You can follow Luke at The Courier on Twitter. Laura in Lona, Iowa. Hey, Laura, what's on your mind today?
1: Hi. Hi, Tom. Um, I just wanted to uh, touch base on something that came up for me recently. My son and my daughter are uh, both in school. We moved from Colorado to Iowa for our vote counts now. So one of the things that I've been noticing is that we're very uh, politically active. And, you know, on my son's birthday, we took him caucusing for Bernie Sanders. Basically, the reason I'm calling is because both my son and my daughter are feeling this sense of, of this overwhelming negative because we've got so many downsides going on right now politically right. and I've been trying to get them into a place where they have more of a sense of an empowerment from what's going on and a, and a sense that there is something you know that we can move with forward mm-hmm. and so I'm trying to find a way to empower them so they can understand how our government works so one of the things that I've noticed is that, I mean, Chris had just talked about the way that the education system works for poor and, uh, you know, the masses versus the elite. And um, so one of the things I'd like to know is if you have any kind of resources that are maybe not textbooks that are coming out of Texas that would be helpful for children in general, uh, just moving forward. We just got to find something. I don't know. I mean, I love your yeah. book club that you're doing now. Um, so I'm wondering if you got anything that would be more aimed towards actual educational types of Ideas. What
3: do you think? I mean, like textbook kind of things. General, general uh, civics yeah, education.
1: Textbooks. I mean, rather than me going online and finding you sure, know,
3: old, sure like, textbooks. Richard Dreyfus yeah. called me up a couple of years ago, and we had like this hour-long conversation. I was just sitting on the boat, you know, in DC, and he called up on a Saturday afternoon and and just went off at me or with me about civics. He's got a okay. website that he has built that is completely devoted and committed to civics education in our public schools and more generally. It's his thing. And he's like all about this. In fact, I said, you know, why don't you come on the program and talk about it? And he was like, it just never happened. But, uh, you know, the door is always open to him. But that would be a place that I would start. I don't know. I mean, how old are your kids?
1: Well, I've got an eighth, uh, eighth grader and I've got a junior in high school. And I mean, the weird thing is, I mean, I do have, we have a complicated family situation, so I've got one daughter in public school and a son in private school, and of course the son is in private school. We have this continuous conversation about, because he's in a religious private school, and right. this is not ideal for anyone involved, but it's, uh, it's really what's best for him as an individual. You know, right. uh, I wouldn't consider myself a Christian in any way, shape, or form. However, um, it is an environment that has a very low uh, ratio of student-to-teacher kind of situation, and so it's a complicated situation. Yeah, we so had to do that with trying, one
3: of our kids, too. Um, Laura, yeah. org is the website, by the way. Sean just uh, tracked it down for you.
1: Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you so much, Tom. And I just want to say I've been listening to you for about a decade and I adore your show and thank you again for
3: everything you do. There are a lot of excellent books out there, Laura, that go through the politics and economics section of a bookstore, online or physical. I think you could find a lot of good stuff that you could use to round out your kid's education. I'm not going to recommend my own books, but if I were to, I would start with Screw. Oh, we already have (laughs) some. Okay, Laura, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. Good, Good talking with you. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectacular sport, as Bernie said every week, as Bernie, as as President Obama used to say, you are a key component of it. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman.
5: For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.